Well, let us turn. We're on the uh, third of our Meals with Jesus uh, Advent series. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. So I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. And that would be great. A lot of folks today, folks I haven't seen for a while. Welcome. We're glad that you are here. Matthew 9. I'll be reading verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and uh, we need it, especially during the season of waiting that makes up Advent. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us uh, to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. And so we ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. It, it's hard because we usually think we're righteous, but we're too easily revealed to be sinners. It's hard because we're forced to admit we need you too. So give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it really means that we're called to follow you. And as always for this, we need your grace. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Matthew this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, this is the second time that I've preached on this passage. But it's the fourth time that I've preached on this story since it also appears in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, although Matthew is called Levi in those accounts. And so I went back and looked at those older sermons, and I noticed for each sermon I had a very different opening story. One was about a mobster from New Orleans, and another was about a man who tried to kill the president, and another was about Michelangelo's carving of the famous statue of David. So today, let's do something different. Let's suppose that on your way to work each morning, 
you stop at Starbucks. And you get to the store at the same time every morning and you usually see a young girl who gets there about the same time you do. On many mornings, you find yourself standing next to each other in line. In fact, you both order the same thing, a double espresso with skim milk. She's into the goth culture, black hair, black clothes, knee-high jack boots, black fingernails, black lipstick, piercings in the nose, lips, ear, and eyebrows, and a bunch of scattered tattoos. She usually has a backpack that she has to take off to get to her money, and sometimes it's hard for her to hold the backpack, get the money, and pay for the coffee all at the same time. She doesn't make too much eye contact with others. You wonder whether you should strike up a conversation with her, maybe offer to hold her backpack while she pays. You're not sure what to do with the whole goth bit, and you don't know whether she'd give you a dark look or not say anything. Should you even try to be friendly? Maybe find out what brings you both to the same Starbucks each morning. See if she ever tries any of the other specialty coffees. Move towards greeting her each morning. And the answer is yes. By all means, move into her world. Make a comment one day about how the barista probably already knows both your orders as soon as you walk through the door. Offer to hold her backpack while she pays. A couple of days later, maybe even tell her your name. By the way, I'm Dave. Ask for hers. If she misses a few days, tell her you hope she wasn't sick the next time you see her. Why move into her world? Because with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You see anger and alienation. Maybe it's due to abuse or neglect or isolation. You have no idea, but you can see the heaviness and the sadness. And with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You get to work and there's that guy at work that everybody shakes their head at. He's been divorced a few times and both his ex-wives are suing him for child support. He's a deadbeat dad, way behind on support, sending a little bit every so often. He's been living with another woman, but a couple weeks ago he slapped her. She called the cops. He spent a couple nights in jail. She kicked him out, and now he has a restraining order. He's currently living in a cheap motel that rents by the month. Every day at lunch he goes out by himself to get a burger or a burrito, always coming back with mustard or chili on his shirt. Nobody talks to him much. He's quick to complain about how everybody takes advantage of him, Everybody pushes his buttons. Everybody's squeezing him dry, and who wants to listen to that? You've wondered about being nice and offering to go to lunch with him. You know you like the same fast food he does, Burger King and Taco Bell and Subway. And you know now Subway has a sale going on for a three-foot-long sandwich for 10 bucks. You can't possibly eat that much. But it seems a shame not to take advantage of the bargain. Should you invite him along? Yes, by all means. Move into his world. Go to lunch with him. When you get to Subway and you both sit down with your sandwiches and chips and drinks, ask him if he's watched any football games. Who is he rooting for and why is it Tom Brady? <laughs> Mention it's been the worst referee that you've ever seen. 
Why move into his world? Because with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You see bitterness in life, failing at relationships, blaming others instead of knowing how to change himself. You sense his fear of the failure. There's no uh, money. He, He has a record. He has desperation at being left all alone in the world. And with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. In life, we can have the eyes of a judge or we can have the eyes of a doctor. And the eyes of a judge see a goth girl and a deadbeat dad and leave us thinking, why would I have anything to do with them? On the other hand, the eyes of a doctor see the hurts that God can heal. Do we shun the disreputable, those whose lifestyle is questionable? Do we shut ourselves off and have nothing to do with them? Do we leave them to their anger and despair, their ignorance, loneliness, and vulnerability? Or do we move into their world, talk with them, laugh with them, eat with them, play with them, just be their friend? Do we look at them with the eyes of a judge, seeing choices that God should punish? Or do we look at them with the eyes of a doctor, seeing hurts that God can heal? See, those are the kind of questions that Matthew 9 forces us to ask. In our passage this morning, we see Jesus moving into the world of someone considered disreputable, someone whose lifestyle is questionable. The man's name is Matthew, and he's a tax collector. And as we heard last week with Zacchaeus, if you didn't get to hear that sermon from Timo, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But as we heard about Zacchaeus, tax collectors are considered notorious sinners. They are hated. They're oppressors. They're disreputable beyond measure. But Jesus invites this disreputable man to be a part of his group. And through his example, Jesus is saying to us, I think, move into their world as I do with the eyes of a doctor seeing the hurts that God can heal. So let's look a little deeper at this story. After doing some teaching, Jesus is walking along and he sees Matthew. And Matthew is called by Christ. Verse 9, called by Christ. It says there, as Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now let me say something that may be somewhat surprising to some of you. You're not a Christian unless, like Matthew, you've experienced a call. You're not a Christian unless you're aware of having been called. Christianity is not something that you take up. It's something that takes you up. In fact, I would say this is one of the main ways in which we can tell if you're on the right path. You have a sense of being worked on. A Christian is someone who's called. Now, what does that mean? First of all, we have to be very careful not to assume that God always works the same way with every person. 
mean, here's Matthew, he's at work. Just imagine yourself, you're at your desk, uh, people are coming up to you and they're paying you something and you're working in your ledger book and you're saying, okay, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so has given this amount and you're crossing names off the ledger. And suddenly somebody shows up and says, follow me. Well, Matthew's not after this. Matthew hasn't been looking for this. Matthew hasn't been praying for this. And in Jesus comes. Well, first, it tells us we need to be very careful about standardizing the Christian experience. We shouldn't do that. It's really easy to think, I came to Christ in a crisis, so if somebody else didn't come in a crisis, well, you know, I wonder. Or if you came because you did a lot of study and you came to Christianity through an intellectual experience and you don't really trust somebody who came through an emotional experience. Some people feel like you have to walk forward in a service when the preacher makes an invitation. That's the only real way to do it. It's very dangerous to try and standardize how people are called from this passage. And yet there is something in common here. Number one, to be called means that you sense that Jesus is in charge. You sense you're not actually the one who's in charge of this whole spiritual adventure. There's an outside power that's in charge. Now, somebody can say, I can see that here in the story of Matthew. Here's Jesus coming in and calling Matthew right in the middle of the day. And sometimes that's how God finds you. He just shows up. And when he does, you're brought up short. To be called is to experience an alien power at work in your life. And if you don't sense that, if you don't sense that somebody is after you, if you don't sense there's something going on inside, well, that's not real Christianity. Once you learn something of the Christian faith, it's very hard to go back if you're a thoughtful person. I remember talking to somebody a few years ago uh, who really didn't want to be a Christian anymore. This person didn't want to be a Christian because there were lifestyle issues she wanted to pursue um, that Christianity and the ethical standards of Christianity wouldn't allow. And she recognized the truth of Christianity but didn't want it anymore because she realized it demands changes, it demands transformation, and she didn't want to change. So she gets mad at Christianity and at Christians and at the church because she knows. And I think that's someone being called. In fact, to some degree, when a person gets mad at Christianity and sort of angry and feels like God's after them, I actually have more hope for them uh, than a person who says, well, of course I'm a Christian. I've been going to church for years. It's comfortable. You know, religion's a private thing. I don't think you should get too excited about it. I don't care how many Sunday school pins that person has. That person's not called. The person who's struggling with it, who's fighting with it, who's wrestling with it, is almost always somebody who's called. There's a sense of this outside force working on you. And if you're a Christian, you can sense there's something different coming into your life, and that's Jesus. And he's coming in to be in charge. You can tell when you've been called when you realize at some point that you're being confronted with a person and not an idea.
Jesus comes and says, follow me. He doesn't say follow that doctrine. And he doesn't say follow these rules. He says, follow me. Now, to be honest, when people are considering Christianity, there is a particular type of question that I'm not very patient with. I should be, but I'm not. And that's when somebody says, well, you know, I'm interested in Christianity, but what's the Christian view of this? Or what's the Christian view of that? Or what's the Christian view of doing this or that? And, and what they're saying is, I'm interested in Christianity, but I want it to be too narrow. I want to be able to live my life however I want. Can Christians do what I want to do? Well, when you ask those questions, you're heading down the wrong path. Because the Bible is telling us first, first, you have to decide who he is. Now, over the years, I've had a number of people say, what's the Christian view of? Name it, some culture war issue. And with all due respect, who cares? Because first you have to ask, is Jesus who he said he was? Is Jesus who he said he is? And if he is the person he says he is, then he's the authority. Then you can go and figure out what he says about all of those issues. You realize how ridiculous it is to say, I want to know whether I like your view of the issue. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the Savior of sinners? Is he the Creator? Is he the Redeemer? Is he the Judge? You've got to work on that first. Once you settle the question of authority, then you can ask all those other questions. And yet people say, you know, I want to do whatever I want to do. And even though I, I may agree that Jesus is who he said he is, even though he's the son of God, even though he's the judge of all the earth, even though he's the savior who died for me, I'm not coming to him. Because I want to do what I want to do. And my response is, what's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? It's New Jersey coming out. And Jesus says, you are misunderstanding because that is not a lack of faith. That's a lack of sense. If Jesus is who he said he is, the only rational response is to do what he says, regardless of what he says. If he's the king of the world, if he's the king of the universe, if he's the king of all creation, then the only rational response is to follow him. And you follow him by doing what he says. And if he's not, then none of this matters. If he's not the king and the creator and the savior and the redeemer, who cares what he says about those issues? Because you're not going to follow him anyway. His opinion isn't any different than mine or yours or anybody's if he's not the king. So first you have to figure out, is he him? Is he the Lord? Is he God? Is he the king? Is he the savior? And if so, then he says, follow me. In other words, Jesus is letting us know, I'm not going to deal with you about anything else until you decide how you're going to deal with me. I'm not going to tell you about anything else. I'm not going to tell you why your life went this way or went that way. You decide who's the authority in your life. Is it me or is it you? That's the call. And whenever I see people who just love to talk 
about theological issues or argue about creation and evolution or they're fascinated with miracles or healing and so on and so forth. No offense, all those things are interesting and some of them are really important, but they're never the first thing. If the Holy Spirit is really after you, if you're really meeting the real Jesus who says, follow me, you have to come to grips with him first. You have to figure out who he is, and then you have to decide how you're going to relate to him. And then after that, you can figure out what he teaches about this and that and what he'll have us do. You don't say, I'll come to Jesus if I like his agenda. You have to say, if he's the Messiah, if he's the Christ, then I have to get with his agenda. His agenda would be life for me because he's my creator and he's my redeemer. Either he is your creator and redeemer and his agenda, whatever it is, is life for you, or he's not. And if he's not, you shouldn't have anything to do with him. Have you heard that call? Have you heard him come and say, follow me? Maybe today's the first day. Maybe for the first time you're realizing, gee, Christianity isn't just about being more religious and adopting a set of rules. It's coming to grips with who's Lord of my life, who's Savior of my life, me or him. And it's all or nothing. So first, a Christian is called by Christ. Next, the way you know you're called is because you've been called to Christ. You've been called to Christ, verses 10 through 15. This is really the heart of our passage. If you look at all of chapters 8 and 9, there are 10 miracles. And there's one little section right in the middle that's not a miracle, and this is it. And how it's being written to a Hebrew audience, and what's in the middle is always what's most important. And this is the part that's in the middle. Starting at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Now this is not only important passage, it's a different passage, it's kind of a curious passage because Elsewhere in the New Testament, both Paul and Jesus reject this way of talking about being righteous. When he says, I came not to call the righteous, he's defining it in a way we would describe as self-righteous. And Jesus and Paul don't use the same language in uh, other places. Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. Luke 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And if Jesus says that and Paul says that, why is he using the terms this way here? Because this is how the Pharisees talk. And the Pharisees divide the world into good people and bad people. 
And Matthew is a classic example of bad people. Matthew's a tax collector. Tax collectors, Jews who collected taxes for the Romans, and so they're hated, not just because they're helping the oppressors, but they bribe people, they line their own pockets, they're generally corrupt. Now, it's typical for many to say, particularly in our world today, you know, there's, there's little sins and there's big sins. And there's good people who do little sins. I'm a good person, I do little sins. Of course, nobody is perfect to err as human, blah, blah, blah. However, there are bad people. They do big sins. Pharisee religion divides people between the good and the bad, between the little sins and the big sins. What are the big sins? Things like bribery and extortion. Traditionally, criminal activity, sexual immorality are big sins. So we see bad people and good people. The good people do things that are wrong, but they're little sins. And you can say, yeah, you know, but I'm way beyond that now. I'm tolerant. I live here in Northern Virginia. But Pharisee religion is way more pervasive than we may realize. Pharisee religion is not just the way traditional religions operate. It's the way the heart operates. And I was reading an interesting article. I've shared this before about the 1950s. At that time, Joe McCarthy was a United States Senator from Wisconsin, and he was pretty much hated uh, all over the country because he was going after people and accusing them of being communist. And the article mentioned that he was a known harasser of women. He was always harassing his secretaries, always trying to embarrass them, but he was faithful to his wife. And people tried very hard to bring Joe McCarthy down, but nobody ever brought up the issue of harassment. Because back then, that was a little sin. If you were faithful to your wife, but you harassed your secretary, suppressive to women, that was a little sin. Being faithful to your wife, that's what was important. Adultery was a big sin. Harassment was a little sin. Now it's totally reversed. Harassment is a big sin, and adultery, not so much. It's not gonna keep you out of elected office. Now here's the point, if you're thinking, there's big, excuse me, there's big sins and there's little sins, and I only do little sins, I don't do big sins. I mean, those are bad people. They're what's wrong with this world. They're what's wrong with this country. I'm okay. And the reason you do these things, the reason you stay out of big sins and you only have little sins is so you can say, you know, God owes me. I've made sacrifices. I've said no all over the place. I said no to this and to this and to this, and I believe in traditional foul, values and I've done all these things and I go to church and I tithe and I fast and therefore God owes it to me to save me. He's lucky to have me on his team and he, he needs to hear my prayers. I only do little sins. And without actually coming out and saying it, the faith you're professing is that you think you're better than other people. You're bringing your sacrifices, the things you've done, you defend yourself by your good works and your sense of being superior. You look down your nose at lower class America, the rest of the world, the other side of the county, and feel superior. I live here. And this passage is challenging us to look inside and take a serious look at our hearts. The Pharisees are obvious. The Pharisees brought their sacrifices, literal animal sacrifices, 
They brought their tithes. They brought their offerings. They looked down at everybody else and they said, God owes me because I'm better than them. Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee is obvious, but everybody does it. Everybody. And Jesus comes and he says, I got nothing to say to people like that. Because now in this passage, he's using the terminology of the self-righteous, of the Pharisee, of those who think they're religious enough. If sinners mean that people are doing bad things, then righteous means people who think they're doing the good things. And the reality is there's both a conservative and a liberal approach to being a Pharisee. The conservatives say, what's Jesus saying? What is he even doing over there eating with tax collectors and sinners? What are we talking about here? And Jesus says, I'm talking to them because these are the people that understand what I have to say. You have to see yourself as a moral failure. We just can't move on. And conservatives don't tend to get that. Reality is liberals don't either. They say, sinner, really? That's pretty primitive. I'm okay, I'm better than most. Of course I err, but this whole thing is ridiculous. And Jesus says to them both, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He tells them, I'm gonna quote something from the Old Testament. He doesn't actually say that, he does it. I want you to go and learn what it means. Remember, he's quoting the Old Testament to the Pharisees, the people who are supposed to know the Old Testament. He doesn't expect them to understand it right away. Being a Christian takes thought. He says, this is deep. It's gonna take you a while to figure it out. I want you to study it. I want you to think about it. I want you to talk to people about it. Talk to me about it. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting, quoting from Hosea 6 and Isaiah 58. A couple of places in the Old Testament where the prophets come to the people and say, you guys are fools. You bring your sacrifices to church. You bring your offerings, all this religious ritual. Don't you understand? That's not what God's looking for. This is what Jesus is saying. What does it mean? Well, I think it means a couple of things. First of all, that God, and it says this throughout the Old Testament, God's looking at the inside, not the outside. And if you're doing works on the outside and there's no change on the inside, you're missing the point. And he tells us, look at the love that's required. Look at the law which demands that love. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If God really created you, most people seem to believe that, then we owe him everything. We should be showing him tremendous love all the time. He should be number one in our lives. Is he? Of course not. Love your neighbor as yourself is the golden rule. Treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. Meet your neighbor's needs the way you would want them to meet yours. Does anybody do that? Of course not. Jesus says, look away from your sacrifices and look at the mercy. Look at the love God requires of you. And if you really do that, you'll be humbled into the dust. Do you know what all this is? This is a mini version of the Sermon on the Mount. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't kill, but I say you don't even resent. What's he mean? Here you are, and you're guilty of little sins, a grudge here and there. And there's somebody over there who's murdered. And he says, don't you realize the difference? Just as an entire oak forest at one time was in the acorn, all it needed to let its power out is the proper environment, water and sunlight and so on. So murder is in your heart, no matter who you are. The only difference between you and that killer is the restraining forces that have kept your acorns on the shelf instead of letting them fall into some damp mud. If you look at your heart instead of your sacrifices, inside instead of outside, if you look at what God's required of you, it should humble you. Then lastly, I think he's telling us, look away from your sacrifices to the only mercy that'll save you. And what's the only mercy that'll save you? Jesus comes and says, it's me. I've come, here I am, eating with tax collectors and sinners. And what he's really trying to say is the only way you'll get out from under the problems is to look away from your sacrifices, from your works, from uh, all the good stuff you do. Don't look and see what you've done. Look at what I have done. Don't look at your sacrifices, look at mine. That's what's gonna smash the old wineskins. We're called by Christ, and then we're called to Christ. And last, we learn that we're called for Christ. We're called for Christ, starting at verse 16. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. Jesus tells us there has to be a change in the way we think about life. There has to be a breaking up of old ways, because Christianity is new wine. When you put new wine into an old wineskin, the old wineskin doesn't have the flexibility. And see how this metaphor works. The new wine begins to ferment, it begins to swell, it's chemically active, uh, it needs space, and it's going to break that wineskin. It's always the case with Christianity. And here we look at Jesus eating, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And we've talked about what eating means. That's why we're doing this whole Meals with Jesus Advent series. Eating was so much more back then than it is today. To sit down and eat meant to have close fellowship with someone. To eat with somebody is to say, let's have a relationship, let's be friends. Jesus eats with sinners. In fact, he says, I only eat with sinners. So, are you like that? How do you deal with the failures of others? When people come and tell you about something they've done, where they failed, where they've let themselves down, they've let God down, they've let their family down. How do you treat them? Are you impatient? Are you indignant? Do you say, why can't you get your act together? Or do they sense you really don't understand how they wound up in this predicament? Even if you're not so thick to say, you did what? How can anybody do that? 
I mean, if that's your response, you're righteous in the negative way that Jesus is talking about, what we would call self-righteous. If you don't believe that murder and awful things are an acorn form in your heart, then you don't believe really you're a sinner like everybody else. As a result, it's hard to be sympathetic and it's hard to give people like that hope. People don't tell you your problems, they don't feel accepted by you, uh, you can't give them hope. And what you can't do is you can't tell them Jesus loves people like you. Jesus runs to people like you. Jesus runs to the helpless. Jesus runs to the repentant. Jesus can't resist people who come to him and open up their hearts like that. Do we say that? Do those people get that impression from us? Or do they think we're kind of cold and we don't know what to do with people who do that sort of thing? How do we treat moral failures? Often that will reveal whether we're a Pharisee or not. And it'll tell us at least how much of the Pharisee is still inside. The text tells us, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overhears that, and he gives them the answer that becomes our pattern for today. Starting at verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying that it makes as much sense for us to stay away from sinners as it does for a doctor to stay away from the sick. A doctor has to be with the sick in order to bring healing, just as we have to be with sinners to proclaim an even deeper healing that comes from God. So yes, by all means, move into their world with the eyes of a doctor, seeing the hurts that God can heal. Talk to the goth girl. Strike up a small friendship. As Christmas draws closer, buy her a present, maybe one of those travel coffee mugs that Starbucks sells. Have lunch with the deadbeat dad. If there's an unmarried pregnant girl in one of your crowded classes, save her a seat. Strike up a conversation with the older woman that looks like she's lonely. Engage with the man who just lost his license for drunk driving. If your coworkers invite you, go with them to the New Year's Eve party. Stay sober, but sit and talk and laugh. Go to your high school reunion. Marvel that Mr. Brewer is still teaching algebra. Tell stories about whose houses you used to TP or how your team won districts that year. And when they start talking about women, brag about your wife and tell them that she's the best thing that ever happened to you. Move into their world and connect if they're willing. Be a friend and let God take it from there. Move into their world with the eyes of a doctor, seeing the hurts that God can heal. Jesus eating with sinners is something that will knock you flat if you really understand it. It means no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the distinction that Jesus recognizes is not between the good and the bad. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And the only distinction that divides us is between the proud and the humble. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I'm not worthy. You don't owe me a good life, you don't. You owe me nothing but wrath. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the minute that happens, he comes in to eat with you. 
If you say you owe me a good life, when that happens, he says, I haven't come for you. And that's real Christianity. That's the gospel. It's that simple and it's that profound. Because Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. By the way, let's not forget this tax collector, Matthew, not only followed Jesus faithfully for the rest of his life and wrote the first book of the New Testament, but was killed as a martyr for his faith, all because he was called by Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you've given us a King, your Son, our Savior. Thank you for giving us a picture of what it means to be a Christian. There are a number of us right now who probably don't even realize we're being called because our lives are such a mess. But it could be you're trying to teach us your strength is made perfect in weakness. It could be you're trying to get us to see our weakness and our need for you. So Father, I pray that the people here who realize they're being sought by you would answer your call. Father, some of us are seeking very hard. We can't seem to find you. But Lord, you will come to us if we say, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Show me yourself. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being afraid to admit our sins and shortcomings. Forgive us for the self-righteousness that drives people away. And work in each of us this Advent as we sit down to meals with Jesus and as we hear what he, he has to say about following him. Thank you for this story of amazing grace. Thank you for the glimpses we get of Jesus and his mercy towards sinners like us. Give us again, we pray, the faith to believe we can do whatever Jesus asks us to do. And teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and in your gospel and draw us ever closer to your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.